All right, here we go, whether you're ready or not. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 <laughs> says this. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So let me give you a little bit of context here. If you were to back up like just a couple chapters to the end of chapter 7, very beginning of chapter 8, what you're going to see is one of the main out front, up front Christians named Stephen is being stoned to death and he's killed. In fact, there's this great persecution that breaks out against the church, the early church, the early Christians, believers at that time. And it says that the very uh, first verse in chapter 8, in fact, flip there, it says, and Saul, same dude we just read about in Acts 9, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. In other words, like they wouldn't have mentioned Saul being there if, if he wasn't playing a significant role. And so Saul was there playing the significant role in this killing of Stephen, probably leading the pack. He had probably hired the guys or, or invoked the guys to go and stone, kill uh, Stephen. Sorry, I think I said Paul earlier. So, so Saul, uh, when we get to Acts 9, verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out these murderous threats. Two things you need to understand here now. One is when it says he was still breathing out these murderous threats, that means this had been happening for a while. And when it says he was breathing out or giving out these murderous threats, this was not a guy who, or like, you know, a dog with uh, bark but no bite. Like there was bite to, Paul, to, Saul's, to Saul's bark. And so he was saying, you know, these murderous threats, but he was also following up on them. And people were dying at the hands of Saul. People were dying because of his passion to eliminate Christians, people who were following Jesus. So then we get to verse two, and in verse two it says that Paul goes to the high priest there in Jerusalem who was like, not just religious leader, but government leader, had a lot of power, and he says, look, give me the permission, give me a note of your approval that I can take to this other city, Damascus, and when I get there, I can give it to the leaders there and tell them that I'm here to eliminate people who are following what they're calling the way, Christians. And so he gets that approval, and then it picks up in verse three. As he, Saul, neared Damascus on his journey, so they're now on the way to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so Saul responds, he says, who, who are you, Lord? And he's not saying Lord is in like identifying, this is who I think you are. It's more cultural, like, hey, who are you, dude who's just knocked me off my feet? And he says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. So, so Paul's, or Saul has gotten permission from the high priest to go into Damascus and persecute, arrest, with the intentions of taking them back to Jerusalem and killing these Christians. And then it says, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. All of a sudden, this bright light, it flashes around Saul, and it completely catches him off guard. Now, when I was in college, me and my buddies, we would, we would go spotlighting all the time. And I don't know, some of you are kind of giggling, so you may know what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about, you know, taking a spotlight and going like spotlighting rabbit or deer and shooting them. Although in Arkansas, that happened a lot. We were taking a spotlight, and our, on campus and around campus, there were just some makeout places. And so the boy, the girl, they would go either in the car or they'd walk off, you know, into the bushes or whatever. And, and they would kind of have these little makeout places, and we knew where they were. So we took one of those big deer spotlighting spotlights. And uh, we would hide in those places before they got there, and we'd wait for them to get there, and they're, you know, getting busy, and we just, boom, hit that spotlight on. 
And it was awesome. It was so entertaining for us. And, you know, we were in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, so there's really not anything else to do but go to Walmart. So it was Walmart Spotlight. And it was fun to spotlight because you'd catch these people off guard when all of a sudden, if you've seen one of those spotlights, they're bright, like they hit you in the face. And, I mean, if you weren't doing something scandalous, you're going to freak out anyways. But when you're doing something scandalous, then you really freak out. So they, you know, start getting their stuff together, acting like they're just playing cards or talking or something like that. It was, we, we, we justified it in our mind as involuntary abstinence. So we were working towards pushing abstinence. But I, uh, <clears throat> it's fun to see the reactions. I, I, this Saturday night, uh, I went out with uh, one of the UNT police officers. He's back there. His name is Gerald Shepard. Some of you've met him, actually. Uh, he, uh, and when I say met him, I'm not talking about like bro, friend, met, you've, you've been written a ticket by him probably. But uh, I, I went, he was working Saturday night, and so I went out with him uh, 8 p.m., got, got in the squad car with him till about 3 a.m. Sunday morning. That's why I was a little dragging my feet coming in the Sunday morning. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, so we went and took the law to the streets uh, here in Denton. And uh, you know, it's funny, like if you ever see, um, if you ever see, or this is probably you, you know, you're driving your car or so, you see somebody driving their car and they have no idea a cop is pulling up behind them. Not necessarily to pull them over, okay? But you're driving the car and it's funny to see people's reaction Really when a cop just pulls up and they realize the cop is there. I mean, because how do you drive your car? Like, how are you sitting there in, in, in your car? I mean, you're, you're not like sitting straight up, you know, 10 and 2. You're like leaning back. You know, some of you are leaning so far back that uh, you got to roll down the back window to hang your, hang your arm out. <laughs> but, but for those who are front window people, you know, your, your elbow's kind of like on the side of the window. you got one finger on the steering wheel. Your phone is, your phone is right here to, uh, to your right, and you're, you're texting away. And those of you who are like extremely lazy, even when you're going through campus at 20 miles an hour, you've got it on cruise, so you can just kick your feet back. And, but then when that cop pulls up and you see him in the rear view or he pulls up next to you, what do you do? Man, you throw the cell phone in the back seat, you sit up really straight, nobody sits like that. Put your hands at 10 and two as if anybody under the age of 80 years old actually drives with their hands at 10 and two. And then you actually, you, you know, you act like uh, you're paying attention and really following the law. And you know, the cell phone, I wasn't even messing with my cell phone. It's funny to see people respond just when they see a cop. But then when, uh, you know, cops have those big spotlights on the front of their car. And they also have them, I don't know if you know this, but they have, you know, the lights up top, they have them that come, they shoot out the sides of their car as well. And so the other night, we're driving around, and every once in a while, you know, we'd be spotlighting the building as we'd be driving by, or every once in a while, we shoot it on people just to see, you know, what's up, or make sure they knew we were there and they need to stop messing around. We're driving down Hickory, uh, right past Lucky Lou's bar, and uh, we come up on these three people who are walking down Hickory towards Carroll. And uh, two girls and one guy, and man, this guy, like, he's totally had too much to drink. He's got the whole weeble wobble thing going on where he's, like, hanging on to, you know, both of them, and he's just, you know, kind of doing this whole number, like, you know, like that. You know how that looks. And, uh, and so we pull up next to him, and our windows are down, so we can hear everything that they're saying, right? And, uh, and this guy, you know, we get up next to him, we flash the little spotlight on him, and he, you know, he says, oh, insert expletive there. We'll just say, man, oh, man, it's a cop. And so totally drunk off his tail. He, you know, tries to straighten up like this, you know. And I don't know if he was like freezing because he thought we wouldn't see him if he was really still or, or what, but like to see the reaction was, was just awesome. I mean, just to see people's reaction. When you flash that light, it's kind of like taking a picture in a dark room. And if you, you know, if, if somebody else is taking the picture and you don't know what's about to happen and you're sitting right there, what do you do when that flash hits you in the face? You're like, you know, you're doing that whole number with your eyes and those little black spots get there and you can't see anything and you're stunned for a minute. Well, here, Paul, or Saul, he's, he's on his way to Damascus and it says, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And what does it say happened? 
It says he fell to the ground. Now this was likely during the day because it says they were traveling. They probably weren't traveling at night. So right off the bat, we know this is like not an ordinary light that flashes around Paul. Because if you take out one of those spotlights during the day or flash a camera during the day, it doesn't, it doesn't make you flinch or anything like that. But Paul doesn't even just flinch. Man, it knocks him off of his feet. It makes me think of old school Nintendo Mortal Kombat and that dude who would like shoot the little light ball, a doogan, you know, out. It's like Jesus just jumps out of a bush and bam, you know, hits Paul and knocks him off his feet and he's just standing over him looking at him. Because Paul then is laying on the ground looking up stunned, can't see because he's been blinded by the light and he has no clue what's going on. And so Jesus says to Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He's like, what, what's going on? And Jesus, man, firmly says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. It's kind of mysterious, like just get up and go and I'll tell you what to do later. So then verse seven, chapter nine, verse seven. The men traveling with Saul, they stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone so like, I like the picture here because they're the ones who didn't know the, the flash photo was about to be taken and this, this flash hits them in the face and they're like just standing there you know, trying to figure out what's going on. They can't see anything, but they're also scared out of their mind because they hear this, this noise and they, they hear Paul fall to the ground and they don't go help the bro out. They're just standing there like, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What's going on? What's going on? And then uh, it says, verse eight, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him, they being his buddies, who finally step in and help out. They led him by the hand into Damascus. So for three days, Saul was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. Verse 11, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. So it's like, you know, go to Joe's house on Carroll Boulevard and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, the dude I'm talking to right here, Jesus says, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And look at Ananias' response, because he, he's heard of Saul. In fact, the Christians in Damascus had probably had some runner that ran ahead of Saul to warn them that Saul was on his way to persecute the crud out of him. And so Ananias knows Saul's coming, and he says, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. And then look at, look at how firmly Jesus bites back at Ananias. He says, go, exclamation point, like shut up and just go. He says, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. So then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul. I love that. That's so cool. It's like, he already identifies Saul as his brother. We talked about that last week or two weeks ago. Uh, his brother, his brother in Christ, he recognizes that Saul has been changed by Jesus. And so he calls him family. He says, brother, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, verse 18, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. So he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And then you read on into the next section. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in, in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, what you see later on as you read further is Saul's name changes to what? Paul. I called him Paul like five times already. So it changes to Paul. And Paul is the guy who wrote this letter to Timothy, 
which is the letter that we've been studying the past two weeks and we're studying the rest of the semester. Now here's what I need you to see before we go anywhere else tonight. And, and there's, there's two things that I want you to hear me say tonight and this is the beginning of that. So, so you gotta catch this. The first is Jesus pursued Paul. You got that? Jesus pursued Paul. Paul was not looking for Jesus. Not at all. He was not pursuing Jesus. In fact, Paul was as far from Jesus as anybody could possibly be. Jesus pursued Paul. Second thing is this. Jesus knocked Paul off of his feet. And that sounds kind of a generic term, like an obvious description, but we're gonna explain that a little bit further as we go. Jesus knocked Paul off his feet. Not only was Paul not looking for Jesus or pursuing Jesus, but he didn't want anything to do with Jesus. I mean, you look at the very beginning of what we just read in Acts 9, 1 and 2, and he's on his way to persecute anybody that has anything to do with Jesus. He's running from Jesus. He doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. But then you go to the end of what we read, verse 20, and it says at once, immediately, within three days, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. So he, go, he sets out to stop people from doing this, and in three days, he's doing it. So Jesus pursued Paul, and Jesus knocked Paul off his feet. So now flip over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I'll give you a second to get there. All right, here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Listen carefully. Paul's writing this to Timothy, and he says, <clears throat> I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Now, this is the same guy we were just reading about, writing this. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, might as well say murderer, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, as I was thinking through this this week, and it was just kind of percolating, you know, you know like crock pot, you know, it sits meat and potatoes and carrots and whatever juices are, and they sit in there for hours, and it just kind of, it just, it just cooks. And it's, this is kind of what this was doing in my mind all week long, is percolating, sitting in the crock pot. Okay, up here, this is the crock pot. And as it was sitting there, and I was thinking about it, there's one word that really stuck out to me. Now, in the NIV, in my translation, it's, it's actually three words. Poured out abundantly. But some of you have the ESV or the NSV, and it's, it's, it's one word, and it's overflowed. That word overflowed really, really stuck out to me this week. And, and the word brings with it a picture of a flash flood, or even better, and it's really the same thing but more descriptive, a river that is gaining so much water that it begins to flood over the boundaries of its banks. Now, I, I think I've told y'all before uh, that I was, when I was in college, I was in a fraternity. Uh, and, and before I share this story, I want to share this part because I think it's important. Um, this, was, this wasn't a Christian fraternity. I know we got some frat guys in here. Um, and I want you to hear this for me. Like, I, I, before pledging this fraternity my sophomore year, like, I didn't want anything to do with frats, okay? Didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, and just through a series of events, God really 
put me in this fraternity. Like, like I just feel like he led me to this fraternity for whatever reason, okay? And, and my fraternity had the reputation of the big three, sex, drugs, drunkenness, and they did that all excessively really well. In fact, my senior year, uh, we lost our charter, uh, got it back uh, six months later after I'd graduated, and, uh, or got it, I'm sorry, got it back a year and a half later. Within six months, they lost it again. Uh, and that was like four or five years ago. And uh, I just found out this week that uh, Sigma Alpha Sigma now exists again uh, at the school I went to. So we'll see how many weeks that lasts. But uh, I, you know, I was in this frat, and, and by God's grace, like he spared me from the sex, the drugs, and the drunkenness, okay? Uh, so one of the traditions of my fraternity was every spring to go towards, uh, to go on a float trip in northern Arkansas on the Buffalo River, which if you've ever been to the Buffalo, it's awesome. Okay, so my first float trip was 2004 uh, in April, and leading up to the trip, Arkansas had had a record year of rain. I mean, days upon days of just downpours. And so we're getting up to a couple days before this trip, and all the rivers are at flood stage. So all the rivers are, are closed. They're not letting people in canoes, which is what we were gonna be uh, in, get on these rivers, no rafts, nothing. So the day of, our river's closed, so we start calling around other rivers. Everything is closed, except we found one river, <laughs> and it was called the Upper Caddo River. So we, so we called them, and we're like, hey, uh, can we get on your river? And they're like, yeah, it's beautiful out here. Y'all, come on. So we go out Friday night, and uh, we, we camp out. Beautiful, I mean, amazing night. And about 2 a.m., it just starts to downpour. And because the ground was already so wet, all that water is just going straight into the river. And it pours all night long. So about 9, 10 a.m. when we finally all got up, we're standing there on the banks, and I'm, I'm, I'm so serious. We're watching the water literally come up closer to our campsite. I mean, you know, like it takes time for that stuff to happen. And so like you look at it 10 minutes ago, you see the difference from, you know, 10 minutes later. I said that weird. But you, you see what I'm saying? Like you look at it one minute, then 10 minutes later, you can see the difference. Well, we're watching it, not taking our eyes off it, and we can see difference as it's just creeping up the banks. I mean, that's how fast this water was rising. So the guy that was going to let us use his canoes, there's about 40 of us, two in each canoe, about 20 canoes. He shows up with the bus, canoes, trailer, uh, on the trailer in the back, and he says, guys, I can't let you uh, get on this river. It's way too dangerous. Look at him. It's like flooding. And of course, you know, frat guys, what have they been doing all night? And so they're not really in the right mind. And so they're like, oh, come on, man, you got to let us on this river. You got to let us on this river. And a couple of us who were sober were like, Please don't let us on this river, you know. And uh, <clears throat> so we're, you know, but, but guys in front of other guys are like, oh, yeah, let us on the river. No, please don't let us on the river, you know, behind their back. So he's like, I can't let you all on the river. And, and they're starting to talk him into it, okay. And I'm just seeing this. I'm, th- I'm thinking, Lord, seriously, like, I, I want to live past 20, okay. And, and he says, all right, look, I'll let you on the river, but you guys aren't going to drink on the river, right? And, of course, as he's saying that, there's, like, guys lined up carrying coolers to the bus saying, no, no, we're not, you know, they're not drinking. And anyway, so they load up the bus and, and, uh, and uh, we all get on the bus and we get upriver. And the plan was take us upriver, okay? Uh, and it was gonna be about an eight-hour float back to our campsite. So we get upriver. We get all of our canoes out. Uh, he had forgotten the uh, life jackets, so we had to go back and get the life jackets. We got our life jackets. And we're standing there. And I mean, it's just crazy. Everybody's laughing and yelling and hyped. And all of a sudden, from upstream, do you know what an Arkansas pine tree is? If you haven't seen an Arkansas pine tree, there's one word you need to know, and it's massive. Upstream, we see this Arkansas pine tree horizontally flying down this river. And so I just picture 40 dudes, okay, and we're all, you know, got our orange life jackets around our neck, about to get in these canoes, and we're laughing and joking and talking. 
And all of a sudden, there's this like complete dead silence in our faces as we watch this tree go by. It's just like. <laughs> and, and I'm telling you, in that moment, not just me, everybody was thinking, what? We are not getting on this river. <laughs> like, we would die if we get on this river. But there's that one guy. <laughs> and this guy in the back, he's like, and guys are guys. They're not going to back down. So we're all like, Ooh. you know, so we hop in our canoes and it was crazy, y'all. We hop in our canoes and within the first 10 minutes, we snapped two canoes in half. Those guys ended up stranded in trees. We get further down and, and further down, you know, I mean, I'm telling you, like we're flying down this river. We get further down and the river opens up a little. And one of the big traditions for our, our float trip was we always made what we called a flotilla. And what, what a flotilla is, is we get all of our canoes together and we take our life jackets and use the life jackets to tie all the canoes together and make one big boat, a flotilla. And it was cool because it moves a little slower. Uh, it's impossible to steer, but it moves a little slower. You can walk from canoe to, uh, to canoe and you can fish off the side, etc. So we were like, man, it's tradition. We got to do this. So we take our life jackets off. We tie like eight, 10 canoes together. And uh, just as soon as we get our life jackets all tied tight to these canoes, we look in front of us. And there's about five of these Arkansas pine trees that have piled up in the middle. And there's no way for us to go around in the form that we're in. So we just whip out our knives and start cutting these life jackets off. And we grab whatever's left of the life jacket. And I don't really remember what happened from that point other than my canoe, which there's two of us in each canoe. My canoe and the canoe next to me, we try and go to the right of this pile of trees and we actually flip over. Both of our canoes go straight to the bottom of the river, taking all four of us with it. Three of us pop up immediately and grab onto these trees. And when I say grab on, I mean like we're holding on horizontally because the force of the river. And one guy, he doesn't pop up. And so we're holding on, looking for this guy. His name is Justin Cup. We called him Cup. And uh, it seemed like five minutes, probably 10 seconds. He pops up and he's all tangled in the tree and he, he throws his leg up on the tree and he goes, guys, Guys, I think I broke my leg. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. But uh, <laughs> we look, and we, oh man, his leg from the ankle to the knee was cut open down to the bone. Girls, pay attention. And <clears throat> open like a book. I mean, you could see everything. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm like getting woozy thinking about this, okay? But adrenaline kicks in. And so me and this other guy, we're hanging on for dear life thinking, dude, he's going to die. Like, there's blood everywhere. We've got to get him off this river. And, you know, we're thinking we're seven hours, eight hours, or seven hours away from the end of this float. So, so anyways, the other guy, who's a Marine, he had crawled up on top of the uh, pile. And he's up there, like, shivering because it's really cold. And he's, like, looking around. He's like, guys, guys, guys. And we're like, what, what, what? And he's like, I mean, we're thinking something bad happened. He's like, guys, guys, guys. What, musser? Have y'all seen my cooler? I can't find my cooler. We've got to find my cooler. And so anyways, we get, uh, we get cut back and, and he lived. He actually was in the hospital for a few weeks in a wheelchair for longer. And uh, we lost five canoes by the end of everything. This float that was supposed to take us eight hours took us an hour and a half. And uh, we went on, uh, the, the canoe guy said there were class three rapids that day. I, and I share that story because of this. The power, the power of that river is exactly the image that Paul wants us to get when he says this in verse 14. 
He says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, or it overflowed for me, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. This is where we're going. It pursues like a river. And like a river, it knocks you over. And so this, this picture that he's creating with this word overflowed is what he has in mind as he continues to write into verse 15, which is one of the, is one of the pinnacle verses of this entire letter. Verse 15, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, Paul says. He starts off, he says, here's a trustworthy saying worthy of uh, deserving full acceptance. I mean, people throw a lot of junk at you today. I mean, um, and it gets to a point where it's really hard to know what to believe. Politicians are the worst. And, And I'm not making a statement here for one party or the other, other than I don't know what to believe of any of them. I've been watching some of the presidential debate stuff go on. It's crazy to see just in one night, one debate, how many times these guys flip-flop on like three different things. And I mean, you just don't know what to believe from, from, from anything or from, from anybody. But Paul says in the midst of a world full of empty and false promises, this is one thing that you can hold on to. This is one thing that you can hold on to and know that it will not flip-flop on you. And so he says that to buffer what he says next. And what he says next is this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Pay attention to the words there. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Remember, Paul didn't go looking for Jesus. Jesus came to Paul. And and Paul's story is a small-scale picture of what Jesus did for the world. You know, going back to that, that, that float trip, we were literally in the middle of this, this flash flood. And if we weren't dumb enough to get on the river ourselves, the river eventually would have gotten to us. You know, a couple, a couple years ago, I think it was in the same spot on the same river, the river flooded and nine people were swept away. I think it was nine people were swept away by it and killed. I mean, just like that river pursued us, pursued these people, Jesus pursued Paul. And just like Jesus pursued Paul, you've got to hear this, Jesus is pursuing you. Jesus is pursuing you. Now we use, we use some terminology that I want us to kind of talk about here and, and make sure that we understand it's really not right. We use the terminology that we need to accept Jesus into our heart. Now there's a couple reasons why this terminology really isn't, isn't, doesn't fit, really doesn't work. First reason is this, Jesus doesn't need your acceptance. First reason that we, we really shouldn't use that terminology except Jesus into your heart is because Jesus doesn't need your acceptance. You know, there's, there's always that guy in high school or college that um, will do anything to make people laugh and really to get his peers to accept him. I mean, you can tell that guy, uh, eat this, you know. Uh, it's like something terrible and disgusting. And he'll just do it because he wants to make you laugh. He wants to make other people laugh. And he wants to be accepted. Uh, Jesus did not come to die to gain your approval. Jesus didn't come to the earth to gain your approval or to earn your acceptance because Jesus doesn't need your, accept, your acceptance. And let, let me explain why. It comes from Romans 14, uh, beginning verse 10. Paul writes, For we will all 
stand before God's judgment seat. Now stop there. We will all. We will all. Will means like it's going to happen in the future. It will happen, no doubt. But we all means everybody in this room. But not just everybody in this room. It means everybody outside of this room, which amounts to about 7 billion people right now. And not just the current 7 billion people. All of the billions of people who've gone before us and all of the people who will come after us. So Paul says, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Verse 11, it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. So he says, we all, and then he says, every, same picture. And what's being said here is, one day, all of you, all of us, we will bow before God, whether you choose to do so now or not. And one day, all of us, we will confess Jesus as Lord with our mouth, whether you choose to do so now or not. The issue is not that. Christ Jesus came into the world, he's the one performing the action to save you from this coming judgment. He came to save you from yourselves. He knows his dad. And so he comes knowing his dad, knowing that his dad hates sin, knowing that his dad can't be in the presence of sin, can't look at sin, and so he's coming to you saying, look, I know my dad, and because of what you have in your life, you're not gonna be able to go kick it with my dad unless you're with me. It's kind of like getting into a club when you know, the bouncer won't let you in because you're not cool enough, but you show up with a VIP or a superstar, Kobe Bryant or whoever. I don't know why I picked him, he's whatever. But, but like you show up with somebody who's popular, who definitely can get in, and he says, oh, no, they're, they're with me. Or she says, no, 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 they're with me. And what's the bouncer do? Oh, come on in, come on in. All you people that, you ever seen Night at the Roxbury? Okay, that's the movie I think of when I think of that. So that's what Jesus is doing. He came to save you from yourselves, not to get, get or earn your approval. So the first reason that saying accept Jesus into your heart really doesn't fit, I mean, it's not terrible that you say that, but it really doesn't work. It's because Jesus doesn't need your acceptance. Second thing is this. This, and by this I mean everything we're talking about tonight, this isn't about you accepting Jesus. This is about Jesus accepting you. This is not about you wanting Jesus. This is about Jesus wanting you. First Timothy uh, verse two or chapter two, we're gonna get there in two weeks. Beginning verse three says this. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus wants that. And then Ezekiel, I told you all last week I've been studying Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18 verse 32 says, for I have no, this is God talking, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live this isn't about you accepting Jesus. This is about Jesus accepting you. Paul, he didn't want Jesus, but Jesus wanted him. So Jesus is pursuing you just like he pursued Paul. That's the first thing. Jesus is pursuing you. Now, some of you at this point, you're gonna hop in here and say, you know what, though, this is, I, I, I hear you. I can, I, can, I can understand that. I can believe that. Sure, Jesus is pursuing me, but Austin, here's the problem. He's pursuing me, and when he finds me and sees who I am, then he's gonna turn around and walk away. 
So, so Jesus is pursuing you. This is your mindset. And when he comes to you and he sees just the crud that is there, you think he's going to turn around and walk away. Your, 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 your thought process here is, Austin, man, like, I mean, if we were alone in a room and you were just being completely honest, this is one of those conversations. You're like, dude, honestly, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend and I'm addicted to porn. And I am, Saturday night, you probably saw me out of Lucky Lose. That was me, actually, the one doing the weeble wobble outside of Lucky Lose. Or, you know, I mean, whatever it might be, you hold on to that and you're thinking, man, I have created this, this impenetrable wall that nobody could push down. Not even Jesus. So yeah, he might be pursuing me, but when he gets there and he sees this massive wall that I have created for myself, he's gonna turn around and he's gonna walk away. Let me, let me just say this before you jump to that conclusion. You need to read what Paul says next. Because verse 15, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What does he say next? Of whom I am the worst. And he clarifies why that is important in verse 16. He says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, through me, by looking at my story, my testimony, my life, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Like Paul, he wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing. But I don't know if you noticed this or caught this at the beginning, but when Paul didn't want anything to do with Jesus, Jesus pursued him, found him, knocked him off his feet, and it says Paul became a Christian and immediately was baptized. So this change, it just happens like that. Whatever wall was there, ba-bow, you know, like Mortal Kombat, through the wall. And then you look at verse 20. He says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Within a matter of three days, Paul goes from hunting Christians to being a Christian. Uh, Aaron Wagner, one of our worship leaders, people call him Wag, just call him Wag. Wag likes to hunt. Uh, I thought it was for duck. I was wrong, like deer and, and hogs and things like that. But the transformation of, of Paul hunting Christians, going from, from that to all of a sudden becoming a Christian in three days is about as ridiculous it's about as ridiculous as, as Wag going hunting tomorrow for deer and then on Saturday becoming a deer. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But that's what's happened here. It's crazy because it's crazy. But then you look at, uh, you look at how the people responded in, in Acts you know, it says that once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and they, and they asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? Isn't, isn't, or, and hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So, so Paul shows up in Damascus and these Christians know that he's come to arrest them, take them back to Jerusalem, probably kill them. And so he shows up into their Christian meetings, maybe a meeting like this, and the people are like, whoa, what are you doing here? I mean, it would be just about as crazy before Osama bin Laden died for, for Osama bin Laden to walk into this meeting and sit in the back row. And so you see the people's response. I mean, I know how I respond. If, if, if bin Laden walked in here, I would be out the back door before you could say Taliban, and I don't care about everybody else. Like, <laughs> I'm gone. But that was the same response of 
the people to Saul, when he would walk in, they're like out the back door. And they're like, whoa, hold up, what's going on? And then they start to see, you know, like he might be for real. He might be legit. I, I just, I, I don't know why. I picture this like somebody saying, okay, Paul, you want to pray for us today? And everybody's like, are you sure you want him to pray for us? And he's like, yeah, I'll pray. Pray and everybody, bow your head, close your eyes. And everybody like, you know, bows their head and closes their eyes. And they're, everybody, they're like looking around like, you know, totally don't trust this guy at all. But they were shocked because it was shocking. They were shocked because it was shocking and it is shocking that Jesus could and would change somebody so drastically who was so deep in their own sin. You know, not only was Paul not looking for Jesus, Paul didn't want to find Jesus. He did not want to find Jesus. And and like I said earlier, if he did find Jesus, bless you. (laughs) If he did find Jesus, he didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Yet what happens? Jesus finds Paul. (laughs) And immediately Paul has changed. It's like that river. You know, going back to 2004. I mean, once we set foot in that water, it knocked us off our feet. Once our canoe was in that water, it didn't matter how big a boat we had. I mean, a massive pine tree was being blown down the river, taken down the river by this water. That water was going to knock us off our feet. That water was going to take us where it wanted us to go. And so Jesus is pursuing you. You need to hear that. But the second thing you need to see is Jesus will knock you off your feet. You can't resist the power of Jesus. And there's nothing that he can't move out of the way. There's nothing that he can't judo chop, mortal combat, kick, whatever, through. No wall of sin that you think you've built that is so strong and powerful. So we read on a little bit further. Actually, we're going to go back to verse 14 here. Paul says, The grace of our Lord, back where this word overflowed was, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. It overflowed for me along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So he writes, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus comes into your life, there's three things that that he pours out abundantly. There's three things that overflow like this river. And the first is grace. And this is the one I feel like we have a decent grasp on, kind of, maybe. The first that overflows is grace. Jesus, he forgives you of all of your sin. Past, present, future. Little, big, disgusting, and terrible. I mean, if if Jesus can forgive Paul for killing one of his children, Stephen, as well as all the other people that Paul was probably responsible for killing in some way, as well as if Jesus can forgive Paul for what he was on his way to Damascus to do, then surely, surely Jesus can forgive you of your sin. So the first thing that overflows into our life is grace. But notice he doesn't stop with grace. This is where I think we just kind of stop in our understanding of what Jesus has done for us. He doesn't stop with the grace because after grace, which removes the sin in our hearts, he then comes in and he fills those vacant spaces in our hearts with two new things. Faith is the first. Jesus gives you the ability to believe in him. And he gives you the guts to go when he says go. 
I mean, there's absolutely nothing that could have changed Paul's heart to the, uh, so fast as it was but Jesus. And there's absolutely nothing that could have changed Paul's heart to the point where he was willing to die, willing to lose his family, his friends, his wife, everything that he had but Jesus. And if he can do that, if Jesus can do that for Paul, then surely he can do that for you too. So second, faith overflows in our life. Third is what? Love. The third is love. First John four nineteen says, we love because Jesus first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Paul went from killing to healing or killing to saving. Paul went from hating to loving. And if, and if, and if Jesus can change Paul, transform Paul from a hater into a lover, then surely he can do the same for you. So, so Jesus, he's pursuing you. Second is Jesus will knock you off your feet. He'll turn your life around. And then this one last thing that we're gonna look at here is verse 17. Paul says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. When I read this and I'm, I'm reading his, trying to follow his train of thought here, I feel like this is just blam, right? Random in the middle. And at first I'm like, okay, that's totally random. But then after you read it and think about it and see what's going on here, it perfectly makes sense. As Paul thought about what God had done in his life, he couldn't help but like, as he's writing Timothy, blurt out what he blurts here in verse 17. It's kind of like holy Tourette syndrome. It's like, it just comes out. He can't control it. And so he's, he's writing, he's writing, he's writing, he's following his train of thought, and then he's like, praise God. King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, amen, forever and ever and ever, amen. Now back to what I was saying. That's, that's, that's like his train of thought here. And when Jesus changes you, you can't help but praise him. When he changes you, you can't help but do that. There's a guy you need to know about. His name is John Newton. Uh, John Newton was born like in the 1700s, I think early to mid-1700s in London, England. And he was a guy, his mom died when he was seven. That, that played a huge part in his story because after his mom died, it was just him and his dad. And so he just naturally was drawn into uh, his dad's profession. His dad was a captain of a merchant ship. So John Newton basically spent his whole life on these ships. And so he gets on these ships, and, and, and I'm just telling you, like, from everything I've read about this guy, he was a bitter dude. He was mad, angry about his life, mad his mom had died, mad about the fact that he was doing something that he didn't like to do, which was be on these ships all the time, working for his dad. So he was a bitter, rebellious, obstinate, stubborn guy. And so at one point, he actually, uh, for lack of a better term, it's not like he was kidnapped, but he was kind of kidnapped by the Royal Navy, the British Navy. And they pull him into the Navy and say, okay, you're going to work for us now. So, I mean, to compound the terribleness of his life as he saw it, now he's like really a bitter dude, really just a not, a, not a nice person, angry, hateful. And so he's working for the Royal Navy. He actually escapes from them. They catch him, arrest him, bring him back, beat him, flog him. And they're contemplating doing more of that. And so he actually talks them into letting him go and work on a slave ship for a, for a captain who was captaining one of these slave ships, and the Royal Navy really didn't want to mess with John Newton anymore, so they said, yeah, sure, go work on the slave ship. So John Newton, he goes, works on this slave ship, basically like a servant on the slave ship, and uh, so for the next however many years of his life, this was what he did. Started out as just a, they called him a mate, you know, a ship hand, I guess, I don't know if that's even a word, but he's working on the ship, worked himself up pretty quickly to becoming a captain of the ship, and so for years, several years, he was a captain of these slave trade ships. Now, now, Britain, the British Empire, was huge in the slave trade all over the world. 
And so he's captaining one of, these, one of these ships that was taking these African slaves and ripping them away from their families and putting, him the, putting them onto these ships where, the, where their setting, where the life was like less than humane, torturous, terrible, and then taking them to their destiny of being a slave the rest of the life, hard labor, terrible treatment, beatings, and sometimes, oftentimes, death. Oftentimes, they didn't even make it to their final destination because the, the, the situation on the ship was so terrible. Did this for years, for years. And one of the voyages that he was making on his ship, his ship got into this, like, ferocious storm. And God used this, like, ferocious storm to get to John Newton. He had been reading through a couple books, one of those the Bible, one of them a, a book called Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And in the midst of the storm and having been reading through these books, that was the moment that God knocked John Newton off of his feet. And he becomes a Christian. And pretty quickly, somewhat gradually, but pretty quickly, he begins to see what he's doing. He begins to recognize the sin that is there and how inhumane what he was doing was. And so pretty quickly he, he drops the slave trade and he goes to England and becomes a pastor. And in his time in England, he becomes one of the most influential pastors of his day, next to like John Wesley, George Whitfield, who those guys were earlier than him. So now it's John Newton. And he influenced a lot of people. One of those people he influenced was a guy named William Wilberforce. Anybody ever heard of him? William Wilberforce. Uh, he was, when, when he met John Newton, William was about 24 years old, just a little bit older than you guys. And he was already involved in politics in England. And, and Wilberforce had just become a Christian, so he was seeking advice. Do I stay in politics? Do I stay in this pursuit of government, leadership in government, or do I leave and go to the ministry? So he calls on John Newton. He goes to meet with John Newton. And I want you to read you from William Wilberforce's biography, which is a very good book, and I recommend. This is what it says. Newton didn't tell Wilberforce what he had expected, that to follow God, he would have to leave politics. On the contrary, Newton encouraged Wilberforce to stay where he was, saying that God could use him there. Most others in Newton's place would likely have insisted that Wilberforce pull away from the very place where his salt and light were most needed. How good that Newton did not. And here's why it says how good that Newton did not encourage Wilberforce to leave government. Wilberforce would go on under the influence of John Newton to be the lead guy in abolishing the British slave trade. And his work, tireless work until he died, would eventually influence and lead to, long term, down the road, the abolishment of slavery in the Americas. So this guy, John Newton, knocked off his feet by Jesus, has influence over William Wilberforce, has influence over the world. But it wasn't just that, that he contributed to the world. John Newton also wrote out of this, kind of like Paul, this uncontrollable praise, looking at his life, seeing how terrible he was, how rotten he was, how wretched he was. He would write these songs of praise and response. And he wrote one song that has influenced the world ever since. And the lyrics to that song are this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind but now I see. You know, it sounds a lot like what Paul says in verse 15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, the rich. Jesus is pursuing you. And Jesus will knock you off your feet. For some of you tonight, this moment, as we close out the evening, is about you responding in that praise. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done in my life. But for some of you, some of you need to stop trying to resist what Jesus is doing in your life. For some of you, you need to realize that there is no wall that you could build that would turn him away from you. There's no wall that you could build that he can't bust down, Jesus style. Forget Mortal Kombat. And you need to stop resisting him. And you know, when, when that happened for Paul, here's what Paul did. Paul said, I mean, well, he wasn't standing up. He's laying on his back on the ground looking up at Jesus. And he said, all right, here I am. I'll stop whatever I was doing. I'm yours. And he, he stopped living in that sin that he was living in. And then it says immediately he was baptized. And then it says, he started telling people about Jesus. Tonight, if that's you, I want to, I want to encourage you. Um, we did this last week. We don't do this every week. Uh, but I, I feel like we, here's what I'm going to do. Afterwards, I'm going to stand right here like I did last week. And, and uh, I would love to encourage you, if, if that is you, if you're, you're the one who needs to stop resisting Jesus and let him knock you off your feet. 